to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Our Father, we do ask for your Spirit's help. Uh, The one who has inspired the Scriptures, we pray that you would breathe on us and inspire us with the same word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. We're in our fourth in the letter of James in the New Testament. The big issue that we're facing today, you may be slightly disappointed to hear this, is the subject of favoritism. Chapter 2, verse 1, don't show favoritism. Chapter 2, verse 9, if you show favoritism, you sin. And I looked at this and I thought to myself, this is a fairly weird and left field sort of subject and congregation are going to turn up on Sunday morning and their lives are very complicated and there's all sorts of burdens uh, hanging on their hearts. And here we are looking at the subject of favoritism. I hope, however, to show you that this is an extremely helpful, significant and in some ways liberating subject. And I want to try and do this for a few minutes before we turn to the text by just asking a few questions. The first question is, if you were writing the letter of James, what do you consider people to be facing all the time? Now, James starts the letter by assuming wisely that people are facing troubles and trials. That's the way the letter starts. And I suspect that it is absolutely right. We're never going to have days, weeks, months where we're not facing lots of little troubles, tests or trials. And the wise advice of James is that you should assess what is happening in the light of what the Bible tells us, which is that God loves you, that he's wise, that he's powerful and that he's at work. And that will change the perspective on some of the trials and the tests. He then says, you're going to face temptations all the time. And he urges us not to trace the temptation to God's malicious workings, as if God could ever work maliciously, but to trace a huge amount of the temptation to our own sinfulness. And he urges us, as we saw two weeks ago, to credit God with good and to recognise evil in our own hearts. And then, as we saw last week, he urges his readers to take the good gift of God's word and try putting it into practice, because then there'll be a growth in faith and in faithfulness. There's a summary of the last three Sundays. But the other thing which people are going to face all the time is people. And we can't, in a way, get away from people. We've got family people, we've got neighbours, we've got um, people we meet in the shops and the streets, there are strangers, there are work colleagues, and because we belong to the family of God, there are the people of God, fellow Christians. And we need to assess one another also with faith. We have to somehow treat one another as if we're working from the Bible rather than just from our own nature. Just as we are to assess trials and temptations in the light of the Bible, we're to assess one another in the light of the Bible and not just as we would naturally. 
Because if we assess people naturally, we will sometimes fear them. Fear of man is a snare. We'll sometimes uh, overly honour them, maybe even worship them. Sometimes we'll dislike them. Sometimes we'll envy them. Sometimes we'll ignore them. And sometimes we'll favour them, which James is writing to avoid. And so he literally says in chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, listen to this, don't have faith in Christ with face reception. That's what he literally says in the original language. Don't try and combine faith in Christ with face receiving which uh, simply means don't think that you can combine Christianity with a face, F-A-C-E, assessment of somebody. You can't do the two together. Now, the problem, of course, is that we do. That's why we get so enslaved and misled and confused. We put some people up, we put some people down. We live more by face F-A-C-E, then by faith, F-A-I-T-H. So James is going to help us and equip us in the verses that we're going to look at to think well and to relate well. The second question, however, by way of introduction is, how many ways does favoritism or partiality work or cut? And the answer is that it works hundreds of ways. Uh, We can treat people by their looks, attractive, unattractive, We can treat people by their age. We can treat people by their wealth, their friendliness, their usefulness, their power. And the treatment can go either way. Someone may may meet a very powerful man and fawn. Someone else may meet a powerful man and attack. You might meet a young person and envy them. You might meet a young person and despise them. Imagine if you're on an interview panel to award a Christian scholarship and the people got down to two and one of them was a fairly pompous, geeky, white boy and one of them was a sweet, attractive Aboriginal girl. Which way is the scholarship pressure going to go? So the issue that James raises is a very big one and I realise as I read the letter that it's much bigger than St Thomas's North Sydney. This is a letter which has been going around the world for 2,000 years and last week I was reminded of how parochially I often interpret the Bible because there I was attempting to explain a section last Sunday and um, Stephanie Browning quite um, firmly and sweetly said that If I lived in another part of the world, I would see much more than I saw. So this letter is a huge, deep, wide and wonderful letter. And the last question I want to ask is, how does favouritism really affect things? Why does favouritism really matter? 
And if you read the verses which we have this morning in chapter 2, 1 to 13, you'll see that here's a summary of reasons why favoritism matters. Verse 4, if you treat people with favoritism or partiality or special treatment, it means you discriminate. And in the fellowship, of course, that's extremely significant. And you become, says James, judgmental. Chapter 2, verse 4. To be judgmental, of course, is very destructive to fellowship. It means that we take a position of superiority that we're not entitled to. Or look at verse 6. If we are people of favoritism or partiality, we will end up insulting the poor who God does not insult and we'll end up giving favour or power to the rich who God often brings down. God repeatedly elevates the humble poor and he repeatedly demotes the proud rich. So if our fellowship, if our church takes the opposite position to God, well, we'll undermine the gospel. And then look at verse 9. If we exercise favoritism, it's a sin against people. It's law-breaking. And then look at verse 12. If we exercise favoritism, we need to remember that we're one day going to be assessed or judged ourselves. And we're going to be assessed or judged for the life that we've lived And since God has put a new life into his people, that life is going to be assessed or judged. And so it is good for us to see now why this issue is a big one and how James equips us. And all I can say is that when this is over in a few minutes and we just basically, we just move out, that somehow we'll need to be uttering a small, genuine prayer that God would help us to relate to people as Christians with the the glasses of the Bible and not just with our own instincts and our own affections and prejudices. Well, there are four brief helps and these are going to be very fast. The first, verses one to four, is remember God's son. Remember God's son. Look at chapter two, verse one. My brothers... My sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Remember James gave Jesus no glory growing up? We've said each Sunday that James, half-brother of Jesus, grew up in the home, did not credit his brother with the status that he deserved. And it wasn't until Jesus was raised from the dead and apparently went to meet with his brother James and confronted him and probably shocked him And James began to see this half-brother of mine is God come into the world, has died, has been raised, is glorious. Unstoppably, unspeakably glorious. And the first key to seeing people properly is to see Jesus properly, to see him in all his glory. And therefore, what this will do is that two people will walk into the building And we're conscious that Jesus is very great, much greater than anybody who walks into the building and much more loving than anybody else in the building. And so we'll begin to treat the very wealthy person in a proper way and we'll begin to treat the very needy, unattractive person in a proper way. 
It'll be done in the light of the greatness and the glory of Jesus. So when Jesus looms large in our minds, which is not easy, people will be in proper perspective. Now, I think this is a real challenge. We've had um, quite prominent people come to this building in the last years. We've had uh, two of our prime ministers come on a reasonably regular basis to worship here at the eight o'clock service. Uh, We've had the governor um, when she was in the area coming on a regular basis. And the challenge is to treat them with the respect which we ought to treat them with because the Bible tells us we ought to treat our leaders with respect, but also not to not to glorify them or to think of them as being of more worth than anybody else in the building. How do we do this with respect, but still giving the glory to Jesus? How do we see through the politician who turns up as if they are better or worse than anybody else? What, what happens when somebody comes who's a really famous actor? What happens when somebody comes who's a great athlete? Do we find ourselves, yes, humanly we do. We find ourselves reacting unusually but a very great perspective on Jesus will help us to to see people in perspective as well people in the bible who saw something of God's glory were much better at dealing with people after that you think of Moses after he'd been up Mount Sinai he was not the slightest bit of afraid of the Israelites or you think of Isaiah when he'd seen the Lord in his glory and all his holiness and he immediately saw himself and all the people of God as being very unholy or you think of um, the apostle Paul having seen Jesus on the road to on the road to Damascus And uh, there he is suddenly confronted with the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And after that, he's prepared to stand in front of anybody, kings or governors, and testify with great boldness. I was reading this week that the largest star that has been discovered in the universe is called uh, Canis or Canis Majora, which literally means big dog. And this star is so big that if you want to get a picture of how big it is, you think of the earth as a golf ball and this star is the size of Mount Everest. (laughs) That's a big planet. The distance between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles. The diameter of this star is eight or nine times the distance between the earth and the sun. As a huge star. And once you have recognized something that big, it's very hard after that to see the earth as a big planet. It's a very, very significant planet. It's the most significant, but it's not so big. And when a person gets a good grip or grasp of Jesus, we begin to see people more clearly, more appropriately. And therefore, I can only say that we need to meditate on the person of Jesus and spend time in his presence. As the old chorus from Sunday school used to say, do you remember, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I was sitting with some people this week and we just started talking about the greatness of God, the greatness of Jesus and we expanded and it was very edifying. And it will help us as we deal with one another. So there's the first piece of wisdom from James. Remember God's son. 
Now the second in verses five to seven is remember God's salvation. Verse five, who does God choose to save? Answer, he chooses to save those who are poor in the eyes of the world. This doesn't mean that he only chooses people who've got few dollars. This means that he regularly picks people the world would not pick. So God's family is always a testimony to his grace and not a testimony to human greatness. Otherwise, the church would be made up of people walking around boasting and saying, uh, why did God pick you? Oh, because I'm great in this area. I'm great in this area. That's why he picked me. He needed me. But the church never does that. The church walks around and says, it's grace. And that's what it'll be like in heaven. So again and again, God picks poor people, people that the world finds not so impressive. And the first line, you remember of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. People who've worked out that they are needy, that they are helpless, that they are sinful. They need a saviour. Some years ago, I was standing near the wall just outside there and I was talking to the owner of the Union Hotel, Mark Mannion. And he said to me, oh, by the way, he said, I need to get one of my children baptised. And I said to him, well, you should come to the Christianity Explain course. So he came to the course. And I think on week two, I was explaining salvation and I was explaining salvation as we often do, as a rescue, as a surf rescue. And I was explaining that if there's a surf rescue, it involves somebody putting up their hand and calling out, help, help, I'm dying. And then somebody who comes and takes hold of the hand and brings you safely to land. And I said, this is what it's like to be a Christian. You have to put your hand up. You have to put your prayer up. You have to ask Jesus to be your savior. And then he comes and he saves you. Um, This is the sort of desperate illustration that preachers use when they're trying to explain salvation, but it works with some people. And the next um, Tuesday night, he walked in a little bit late. And as he walked past my chair, I remember he just leaned slightly over and he whispered in my ear, he said, I put my hand up during the week. That's where his Christian life began. Please save me. Got saved. Poor in spirit. Please help me. I'm needy, I'm helpless, I'm sinful. I've turned my back on you. Would you please save me? That's the people who God saves. That's the first step in becoming a Christian. Now, James says, if you know this, if you know this is how salvation works, if you know that poor is a good place to be because it steers you to Jesus, well, the last thing that you want to do when you're running your church and your fellowship and your gathering is to turn everything upside down and say, the poor go down there and the rich go up. When God says, no, the rich, the proud rich go down and the humble poor go up. So we've got to somehow make sure that our fellowship represents the gospel of grace. I don't need to really hit you with this this morning. I'm not pretending that there are people who don't get this. I think one of the most wonderful things in this place is that there are many very able people and they don't walk around talking about how they are able, but they do walk around talking about how God is gracious. And that's exactly how it should be. So remember God's son, remember God's salvation. Jesus is glorious, salvation is gracious. Third, verses eight to 11, remember God's command. Verse eight, keep the royal law. 
the famous love your neighbour as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. What James is reminding us here is that we friends don't actually have a choice. Our king has given us a command or a law, which is that we're to love our neighbour as ourself. So you and I have got to think about how to do that. What would be the loving thing that I would want? That's what I will try and do. God commanded his Old Testament people to love their neighbour as themselves. How much more should the New Testament community, now that we've seen what love looks like in the person of Jesus, and now that the Holy Spirit has come to make our hearts new, how much more should we love our neighbour as ourselves? Well, friends, you just don't get to do that by loving yourself. You don't get to love your neighbour as yourself if you just think, what do I want to do? And you'll notice that the command is a positive and a proactive one. The secular world has a mantra that goes like this. I never hurt anyone. I never harmed anyone. Why should you go to heaven one day? I never hurt anyone. No, God says, I want love which is proactive, which goes looking and paying and sacrificing. That's what God showed us. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose. And then when we put our trust in him, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residency in our heart and we begin to love with a proactive, positive love for people. We're not perfect, we're not great at it, but it's begun. And James is arguing here, verse eight, if you do love your neighbour, you do well. But if you play favourites, you've broken the law. And he goes on to say, if you break the law, well, you sink your canoe, don't you? It only takes one hole to sink a canoe. And if you break the law by being favourite type people, you break the law. Uh, His illustration, verse 11, is an astonishing illustration. He says, look, you may be steering clear of adultery. And so you say to yourself, I'm really good. But what if you're murdering? It's an almost ludicrous illustration, isn't it? Uh, I keep, I would like the argument to be the other way. I'd like James to say, okay, you haven't murdered anyone. Yes, we all agree that's serious. But have you slept with somebody wrongfully? Because that will establish that you're a lawbreaker. But he doesn't, he puts it around the other way. He says, okay, you may not have slept with anybody wrongfully, but you have, have you murdered someone? Well, you're a lawbreaker. And you can almost imagine people saying, no, of course I haven't murdered anybody. But his point is, do you not understand that if you think you're keeping the commandment of love, but you're playing favorites, you break the law. Well, we need to go back, don't we, to the word of God. And we need to remember that it's been given to us by a very great king. And that when I gather with God's people, I don't have a choice about being loving, patient, kind. It doesn't come naturally to me, but it is commanded. 
and God, by his grace, is able to work it through us. And that brings me to the last point this morning, and that is verses 12 to 13. Remember God's judgment. Remember God's son. Remember God's salvation. Remember God's command. And finally, remember God's judgment, verses 12 to 13. Verse 12, we're going to be judged. This doesn't mean that the Christian's destination is going to be settled. That's settled. Christ died for you. You're going to be with him. But it does mean that your reward is going to be settled for the stewardship of this new life that Christ has given you. So I say that again, when you come to the judgment day and I will come to the judgment day and you'll come to the judgment day, the person who's put their faith in Jesus, their destination is not up for question. They're gonna be with Christ. They've welcomed Christ, they'll be welcomed by Christ. But this judgment day is gonna settle the reward of the Christian. We're gonna be judged by the law, verse 12, that gives freedom This amazing sentence is a reminder that God gave his law to his people in the Old Testament to liberate them. It was like giving them the road rules. This is how the road works. Now add to the law the fact that Christ has brought new life to us by dying on the cross for us. And James says there's going to come a day where God is going to meet you and he's going to see his people and he's going to see that they're spotless because Christ died for them. But he's also going to see what fruit there is. And if there's no fruit, it doesn't sound as though there's a life. You see the argument, you're going to stand before your saviour, you're going to stand before your judge. And if you've been merciless, verse 11 and 12, 12 and 13, if you've shown no mercy, is that because you received no mercy? But great joy to the person who has shown mercy because it sounds as though you received it and it went through you. Someone has said that the question for today is, will you? Will you follow Christ? Will you serve Christ? The question for tomorrow is going to be, did you? Today, will you? On the last day, did you? And A.W. Tozer says in one of his little books, he says, what we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God and obey God as completely now as they know they must do at the last. For each of us, the time is coming when we shall have nothing but God. Health, wealth, friends and hiding places will all be swept away and we shall have only God. For the man of pseudo-faith, this is a terrifying thought, But for the man of real faith, it is one of the most wonderful thoughts of all. So I want to take you, friends, back to the big issue this morning, which is that a major part of Christianity is people and how we see them. Do we see them in the light of their face, F-A-C-E? Because if we do, we may end up being discriminating, dismissive, judgmental, dishonouring to Christ. Or do we see them in the light of God's word, which is therefore to be discerning and honouring to Christ, loving, demonstrating new life. And James gives us some wonderful help so that we can deal with people 
as Christ deserves and as people need. And those simple helps are, remember God's son, he is glorious. Everybody is to be seen in his light. Remember God's salvation, it's by grace. Everybody comes by grace. Remember God's command, love your neighbour is not optional. And remember God's judgment, that's where the new life is going to be seen. And I think these truths will set us free from many traps. They're not easy to remember, but as you read back over the passage, you might remind yourself of these four things, which will help us to have affection for one another as Christ has to us. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.